0: Welcome to Revealed Truth, the audio outreach ministry of Moores Creek Baptist Church. I am Pastor Roger Barnes, and I invite you now to join me as we open the Bible, God's Revealed Truth. Luke chapter 2, and stand with me as we read in the honor of the reading of God's Word. We're going to stand, and as we read this Christmas story together this morning, we ask that it honor God and all that He is and all that He's done for us. So Luke, the second chapter. And we're going to start in the very first verse. And it reads like this, and it says, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger. Because there was no room for him in the inn. Father, this morning we have sung about your greatness. We have fellowshiped together and studied your word in Sunday school, and now, Father, we open your written word, and we ask that you take that word and make it alive in our hearts. I ask personally, Father, that you make very little me of me and very much of you, that today we may see you in all of your glory. This we ask in the name of our Lord and our Savior and your precious Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. And you may be seated. We've looked at uh, why we believe in the virgin birth and why we believe in the Savior's birth the last two weeks. And this week we're going to look at why we believe in God's sovereignty in Christ's birth. It's interesting in the story of Luke. Luke gives us the fullness of Jesus' birth in just seven verses. Seven verses he tells us of the greatest birth ever to happen on earth. He writes it as if it's just an ordinary birth it's almost like he's writing he's been born now let's move on it's interesting how luke does that but in fact luke has little embellishment in his writings at all luke gets straight to the point luke doesn't beat around the bush it's even though he uses very few words in what he writes those very few words are full of meaning they're just overflowing with meaning He doesn't ever stop to explain his statements. He just makes them. He leaves it up to us to discover what they mean and what's behind those. And this morning we're going to do that with this passage. See, Luke uses some very verifiable evidence to prove that the story of Jesus' birth is real. Some say it was a fable made up. Some say it was... Something done over the years to give us an opportunity to have a holiday when actually the holiday that we celebrate now is not at Jesus' birth, in case you didn't know that. This holiday was created to offset a pagan holiday that was at the same time. It was set to try to bring some God into the pagan environment. So this day that we celebrate is not the day. This day was chosen through history because of a pagan celebration, much like the Halloween that we celebrate and the other things, those were not set forth in stone. You're not going to find anywhere in the Bible that it says Jesus was born on December the 25th of 80 as we even restarted our calendar with this birth. You're not going to find those things. What, what Luke is doing here is he's given us enough verifiable evidence for us to understand that this celebration that we have is of a very real, very tangible story very real happening and it's a very real happening that was orchestrated by God see those who originally read this gospel or read what Luke had written they might have even had firsthand experience in this particular time so they might have understood what these names and places meant at at worst they would have certainly heard through the speaking and vocalization of of their customs and history they would have heard about these people in these places we don't have that luxury. We don't remember or don't know about or haven't heard firsthand the stories of thousands of years ago. Yet Luke writes it as if we were there. Luke gives us the information as if we can say he's, he's writing and saying, you remember that Caesar Augustus and you remember Aquinas, you remember King Herod, you remember these folks, and he just writes the story. But it's kind of interesting how he does it in such a way that it can be verified through history. And I find that awesome in the way that he writes. But for these verifiable truths, even though we can verify those truths through history, there's much more in this passage that excites me. What excites me in this passage is that Luke writes in such a way that he proves that God was in sovereign control of everything that happened in Jesus' birth. See, sometimes we stop and think that it was a coincidence. We stop and think that they lived there, that it happened to be that time, and there just happened to be these things going on. But if you took the time to look at all that Luke puts in those seven verses, you would find out that it was detailed from thousands of years before this day. Thousands of years. You see, there's proof of God's sovereignty in the birth of Jesus. And the very first place that Luke gives us that proof is where he says that God was sovereign into the decisions that were made in the world at that time. Where do we see that? In verse number 1 of Luke 2, it says this. It starts off and says, And it came to pass, and it's kind of interesting. You heard Jacob get up a while ago and give you the Greek reading of John three sixteen and 17. And for many of you, you haven't heard those words or knew what those words were. You would have thought that maybe he had had too much sugar this morning if we'd have got up and said he was just going to read to you John three sixteen and 17. But the Greek language is very flowery and it 's very full in its meanings, and sometimes the translation from that Greek into our English is very poor and I've had some say, "Pastor, we wish you wouldn't use that Greek, but you know there's to really understand what happens in a passage, you have to understand the way it's written and that very first sentence there it says, "And it came to pass, when we think about that sentence, we think that something just happened to happen at a particular time. It would be saying that You know, it just came to pass at this time that the weather happened to change, or these things happened to go on. Well, in the Greek, whenever he wrote this and wrote about it coming to pass, that word that was used there because it was a single word, that word more often than not should have been translated to cause to be. To cause to be. That sets the entire tenor for the passage. See, Luke started off, he didn't say it just so happened in those days. What he did when he wrote in those next words, those days, what he was saying is it was caused to be in those days. See, nothing happened by coincidence in God's world. God was in complete control. And it says that he was caused it to be in those days. And you have to stop and say, well, what are those days? What are those particular days that Luke's talking about? It. he goes on to give us specifics about those days. And it's specifics in the things that God was in sovereign control over. And those specific things are actually people. If you look back with me at Luke chapter 1, it's at the end of Luke chapter 1. You remember in, in Luke chapter 1, it was Zacchaeus was um, having prophecies about the ministry of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist being born. There was all these things happening. a very... Um, end of that as he starts to work through that it he talks about uh, about john the baptist and back at uh in luke chapter 1 verse 5 to start off that particular chapter it says this there was in the days of herod the king of judah a certain priest named zacharias of the division of abijah his wife was the daughter of the daughters of aaron and her name was elizabeth luke all the way back at the beginning of his book sets the days for us that he's writing. He sets the days by giving us a very specific person. This person is Herod. Now, this Herod, king of Judea, was not a person that was really involved in what was going on in the religious realm, so to speak, but he was king of the place. He goes on through Luke 1, and he talks about this announcement of this birth of John the Baptist, this wonderful story of how this couple who had been barren were going to, Now have a child. And the prophecy was made to Zacharias, his dad, that this child would be the forerunner of the Messiah. He also happened to be the cousin. And if you remember, Mary and Anna came together. They they came together there for two or three months, it says in the Word, before John the Baptist was born and before Jesus was born. And they came together. And if you remember, whenever Mary came into the place... Little John the Baptist jumped inside of his mother's belly at the presence of the Messiah. And those days were these days of this Herod the King. You can go back in history and look at this Herod the King. And we see him mentioned there in the story of John the Baptist. Then as we go towards the end of Luke 1, the curtain kind of comes down on this story of John the Baptist. And this curtain rises on the story of Jesus and John continues the end the days, giving verification by saying there in that first verse of chapter 2 that this decree went out from this person named Caesar Augustus. This isn't a new name to us. This is a name we recognize. This is one that we recognize from Scripture. We also recognize it from the studies that we've done in school, hopefully, of, of uh, Greek times and, and history and the Roman culture. We notice that word, but do you know that Caesar Augustus was... Not the gentleman's name? See, we've come to know him as Caesar Augustus. That's a title. That's not his name at all. His name, actually, um, it's kind of funny the way things work out, but his name was Gaius Octavius. You say, how did he get from Gaius Octavius to Caesar Augustus? Gaius Octavius was the great nephew of another person that you will well recognize. His name is Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar was a ruler at the time and and at some point in time had died and would pass his throne to one of his children. The only catch was Julius Caesar loved little Octavius. He actually adopted Octavius as his own. And when Julius Caesar passed away the throne went to Octavius. This throne going to Octavius actually went to a a triumphant, there was three gentlemen that were involved. And, and as one of those gentlemen went off to, to war, Octavius took care of the other one. And when he came back, it wound up being two in the triumphant instead of three. And, and the story's told that Julius Caesar uh, had, had picked uh, this Octavius to take the throne. And this Mark Anthony had married Octavius's sister, Octavia, <laughs> That would be an interesting dinner now wouldn't it when mom went to call she said Octavia Octavius and I wonder if there was an Octavian or something she was trying to call the children to the table but this Mark Anthony had married Octavia which was Octavius's sister and that's what put him into the family. So this Mark Anthony and Octavius ruled Rome together. It came down to the point that that Octavius decided he no longer wanted Mark Anthony to be a part of this and went to battle and did away with Mark Anthony and and Octavius took over this, this kingdom of Rome all to himself. And it was at this time that he adopted that title of Caesar. His name at that particular time was Gaius Caesar Octavius was the way that he was known. And again, Caesar being a, a, a title more than a name. He took that from the Julius Caesar. was given that actually by the Roman Senate at the time. So he was placed over this, this group of Romans, this area of Rome, there's something really interesting about this uh, Mark Anthony and Julius uh, Caesar's great-nephew, uh, Octavius. This battle happened about 31 B.C. Julius Caesar had passed away somewhere around 14 or, or so uh, B.C. maybe, whenever all those things were taking place. And these battles and all, as, as they were going on in this region, this this Octavius came to the top as not just the dictator, but he came to be loved by the people. The kingdom spread of Rome all the way out to what we now know as Iran and the desert, out through many regions. And you ask, why is that important? See, it was to be in this kingdom that the gospel was going to be spread. The further this kingdom went of Rome, the further the gospel would go to the ends of the world. And you see, this Octavius, he took over this this region was given that title of Caesar and it became so well known, so honored and revered, which is what the Caesar name meant that, that as he became ruler and ruled over this, this particular region that he put into place, this thing called Pax Romana. It's something that you may have heard about and learned about in school, but this Pax Romana was this peace and prosperity that came to this Greco Roman area. He put into place where, There was this peace among the people. The warring stopped. Prosperity was everywhere. The kingdom was growing. Why do I tell you all this? Octavius knew nothing about God. Cared nothing about God. He was Roman to the core. It was all about Caesar. As a matter of fact, inscribed at his death upon a stone was this Caesar Augustus, savior of the world is the way the Romans saw him. He was himself a god to the Romans. He knew nothing about God. Cared to know nothing about God. But he set in place many of the regulations that ran that Roman empire. It also tells us there in the second verse of Luke 2 that there was this governor, this Quirinius, the governor of Syria. Quirinius was a governor or a leader a couple of different times. He was actually was a ruler over both of the first two senses, the first being here, the second. He was a Roman uh, army ruler in that particular era. He didn't actually make the rules. He just enforced those rules. He enforced those from this Julius, Caesar's great nephew, Caesar Augustus. He was being named in this story mainly for validity to the story. Why do I tell you all this? Because it was these people that put in place the things that caused the birth of your Savior in the place that was prophesied thousands of years before. Yet none of these men had anything to do with God, wanted anything to do with God. They were completely worldly. They were completely about themselves. They were about looking like God and being God to those people. Yet God in His sovereignty took these godless pagan men and orchestrated the birth of your Savior through them. To me, that's an amazing story. It's an amazing story to think that these guys who didn't even know what the Old Testament, as we call it now, was, didn't even know what the prophecies were and could care less were fulfilling those prophecies. Do you know why? Because God's sovereign. All that happened... his birth was sovereign. He was sovereign in those days and those things that happened. He was so sovereign that Caesar Augustus put out this decree, as it tells us there in that first verse. What is a decree? A decree is an edict from a ruler. It's something to say that this is the law. This is what is going to be done. I am God and you are not, and this is what you're going to do. He puts out this rule. I find it interesting that it says there that in verse 2, the census first took place while Cranius was governor. This happened to be the first census. Happened to be the first census. Does that not ring a bell with you? God's doing something. God's using men that don't know anything about him or care to know anything about him and they have those men put in place a rule that people would be censused for tax purposes. And it says it's the first Any coincidence? I don't think so. I don't think so. What God does is he puts into place exactly what he needs to do to fulfill prophecy. You see, it was to be for all the world, it says. And we think, how in the world? The people all the way around the world come to (laughs) these hometowns. Remember, the world at that time was the world of this Caesar Augustus. This Caesar Augustus that spread out across nations, yes, now, but it was the known world at the time. He put into place that they would just have a census. What he did not put into place was that they would do it in their hometown. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. See, this speaks, this whole world speaks of this Roman Empire, this Roman Empire that Caesar Augustus wanted to make himself known in, wanted to be powerful in, and definitely wanted the money from. (laughs) And that's why he was having a census for taxation purposes. But apparently, he and the Jews didn't see eye to eye on this. If you look back through history, this decree was probably put in place somewhere around 8 B.C. Somewhere around 8 B.C. If you know in B.C. the calendar counts backwards. And it looks like this particular story we read is probably somewhere in the neighborhood of about 6 to 4 B.C. So it looks like this decree was put in place a couple of years before it was acted upon by the Jews because it was this power struggle. This power struggle, the Jews tolerated the Romans but really didn't want anything to do with them. The Romans tolerated the Jews and really didn't want anything to do with them. But it seems like they must have come to an agreement somewhere, and the Jews said, fine, we'll, com- we'll participate in this census because we're having to do it at the tip of a sword, more than likely. But we're going to do it our way. And because lineage is very important to the Jews, they put in a place that the Jews would have to go back to their own hometown, the place of their, their li- lineage, the name of their family the head of the household so to speak to be registered so they put into place that part of the rule here God again steps in to a situation takes men that want to know nothing about him and have them put out a decree that everyone would have this census they had to participate in the Jews would argue about it but come to agreement to do it and then they would put into place that the Jews had to do it in their own hometown both groups We're fulfilling prophecy without even knowing it. Why? Because the sovereign hand of God was upon the situation. We look at situations today and we wonder why, don't we? We look at situations and say, God, we wish you would fix it. Have you ever thought about God's in control of it? Have you ever thought about the thing that you're praying for God to do? He's laughing at you because he said, I put them in place to do exactly what they're doing. Have you ever thought about You're asking God to change his mind when God's the one in control in the first place. Do you really think the Jews thought Caesar Augustus was the best choice to run the region? Do you think Caesar Augustus probably did some very stupid things like, for instance, we're going to tax everybody, so let's show up for a census. Sound familiar to today? Yet, God was in complete control of what was happening. See, God is sovereign he is sovereign in the fact that he put into place all the characters to have the Roman Empire require that the citizens of that time would be registered. And it was all to be done in those days. So God was sovereign. He was sovereign over the decisions of the world, so to speak. Yet he was sovereign in a smaller group. He was also, the second point, was God was sovereign in the demands of the nations. You see, because within that world were these nations and and it says here in verse 3 of chapter 2 of Luke it says so all went to be registered everyone to his own city I alluded to while ago that the Jews had put into place this whole lineage idea and that the Jews had to be registered in that city which worked backwards in their lineage to the important folks so to speak you see it was about 90 miles about 90 miles from this little place called Nazareth to This little place called Bethlehem. 90 miles. If I were to tell you today that you had to go 90 miles to do something, would you be concerned? What's it going to take you? The way I drive, you'll probably be there in an hour and a half or so if traffic's not too terribly bad. So, an hour and a half of your life, you'll be there. What if I told you you had to do it on a donkey? Now you'd get a little concerned. What if I told you you had to do it on a donkey nine months pregnant? Would you be more concerned? See, have you ever stopped and thought about what God's sovereignty played out in the lives of those kids looked like? You see, and he was sovereign in the fact that he said, here's what must happen. Jews, chosen people, your heritage, your lineage is important. I'm going to work through the Jewish leaders to put into place that you must go back to this place That is the city of the important ones of your country. Why go to Bethlehem? Why Bethlehem for for Joseph and Mary? If you look in the Old Testament, you read about the city of David, who is the one that was the lineage, the important lineage person in Joseph and Mary's life both, you see Mount Zion more often mentioned as the city of David than you do Bethlehem. Why Mount Zion? Because that's the city where David ruled. But understand, what God had put into place is they'd be sent back to the city of the birth of their heritage or their lineage. See, the Jews held that in very great importance. And it's kind of funny that, that God would say something about this, this lineage of Joseph and Mary and use this name of King David as being the one. If you study much about King David in the Old Testament, you understand King David was a great king, but he was also a great sinner. King David was quite possibly one of the most forefront sinners in the Old Testament. He so much desired this, the wife of one of his soldiers that he took her and had him killed, if you remember. What a gruesome story to think this man that now we're sending the mother and father of our Savior back to this city that is known for a murderer, for an idolater, for a fornicator. But you know, God says something very special about David, if you remember in Acts. Something very special over in Acts. Acts chapter 13. It actually comes from the Old Testament, but it takes two Old Testament verses and puts it together here in Acts 13. He says this in verse uh, 22 of Acts 13. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king. So this is the story about David becoming king. And he says, to whom also he gave testimony and said, that he in your Bible, I hope is capitalized because this is God giving testimony. God said this about David. I have found David, the son of Jesse. Do you remember the story? They came to Jesse. They lined up all of his sons and said they were going to pick one to be a king. And they said, hold on, there's one missing. Where's the little one? Said he's out in the field. Said we'll go get him. They brought him back. They had him all lined up, standing there polished and cleaned. And who was chosen to be king? Little David. Little David, the least of the bunch. He's saying, here he's saying, he raised up uh, for them David as king, to whom he also gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse. And he gives this testimony about him, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. What a beautiful picture of a sinner redeemed by grace. He chose him. He sinned. He forgave him, and David did all of his will. It's this David, this birthplace of David that Mary and Joseph are going back to because of the importance of this this lineage. I find it interesting over in Isaiah that this prophecy is given several times over in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9, if you remember, we read parts of a few weeks ago. and I'll read this quickly for you this morning, but Isaiah chapter 9. He says this in uh, verse 6. He says, For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And here's where he connects David. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom. To order it, establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will be. Performed this he says this messiah israel that you're looking for is going to come and he's going to sit on the throne of david thousands of years before the decree is put in place by pagan godless men god had said this throne of david will be occupied by this messiah he even said it in Eleven, chapter 11 verse 1 he said there shall come forth a rod from the stem of jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots he spoke directly about this rod coming out of jesse the younger son david and out of that would come this messiah he even says in verse uh, um, over in verse uh, 10 he says and in that day there will be a root of jesse who will stand as a banner to the people for the gentiles shall seek him and his resting place shall be glorious He says, out of this little David will come this Messiah. Do you see this prophecy? Thousands of years before this night in Bethlehem, God had spoken. God had said he would occupy this throne. tells us over in 1 Samuel 17, 12 that, that the Ephraim of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse, is the one who had the son named David. See, Jesse was from this town of Ephrathite, which is of Bethlehem. And that's why David was from this place called Bethlehem. You see, and it tells us back in Luke chapter 2, verse 4, it says, And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. I can just see Joseph now gathering Mary gathering up enough provisions to make it to this town, (coughs) placing these upon a donkey, and heading to this city of Bethlehem. It's interesting if you look at a map. As they left this Nazareth, this Galilee, they would travel downward in height, down through many important cities in the history of Israel, many important cities in that region. I can just imagine for the days or months that it took for them to travel that 90 miles, the conversations (laughs) that went on. Can you imagine the conversations as they passed the different cities? Mary, do you remember what happened here? Mary, do you remember what happened here? Joseph, do you remember this? And I imagine through their mind was running all these things that they were seeing and doing as they were heading towards this city, all the while concerned that the pregnancy of Mary. They did this for one particular reason, and one scripture in particular pointed directly to this place that they would go to be born. It's a little book called Micah, Micah chapter 5. It's right back as the Old Testament ends. And in Micah chapter 5, it says this in verse 2, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathath, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, Yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from old, or from of old, from everlasting. Micah made this prophecy statement 700 years before Jesus was born in a place called Bethlehem. And he specifically said, you Bethlehem of Ephrathath, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, though you are small, that verse can actually be translated that you are so small you shouldn't be part of Judah. He says, yet out of you shall come forth to me, God saying, come forth to me, the one to be the ruler in Israel, who will bring, whose goings are from old, from everlasting. He not only prophesies he'll be born in Bethlehem, he not only prophesies it'll be done at the sovereignty of God, but he prophesies that this person this ruler that will be born has no beginning and has no end he says he's from everlasting what an awesome thought to think that God put all of this together some 700 years before the birth of our savior Jesus Christ you see they went up to that city to be registered and we saw that there was a sovereignty in the decisions of the world and we saw that there was a sovereignty in the demands of a nation but there was also a sovereignty in the delivering of the Messiah to us it says back in Luke verse 6 it says so it was that's the way he starts verse 6 here's where English is a little poor because the word that I said was and it came to pass is the exact same Greek word as so it was in the original if therefore and in verse number one, where it says, and it came to pass means to cause to be. Again, here in verse six, it means to cause to be. So actually, if you read verse six, the way that it's laid out there with the insertion of our new understanding of the Greek, it would say it was caused to be while they were there. See God's sovereign hand again? It says, doesn't say she just happened to give birth. It says God caused it to be while they were in this place called Bethlehem. It actually says that her days were completed. The term used there for days to complete it, that completed would be a word that we often translate in our English Bibles as fulfill. So the days were fulfilled. Do you start seeing this picture of God's hand? I find this truly amazing. It says that it was caused to be while they were there that God fulfilled the days. And it says she brought forth her first son in verse 7. Her first son. Can you imagine Mary holding that little baby in her hands? Can you imagine that she gently caressed him? She carefully wrapped him in those swaddling clothes, it tells us in verse 7. The swaddling cloths bound him up like they take a baby today and they roll him up in that blanket because they're exiting a place that they've been very concealed and warm and they're entering this world that's large (laughs) very frightening she wraps this baby in these swaddling clothes can you imagine what was running through her mind I could only imagine I can imagine her looking at that baby and say what was it that angel said again can you imagine her saying here I hold a baby And I'm not even sure how I conceived this child. Can you imagine her looking in Jesus' eyes and saying, is this baby really the Son of God? Can you imagine? She was probably about 13 years old. 13 years old. Holding her hands. God. God. She takes him after she wraps him in those cloths and it says there in verse 7 that she laid him in a manger a feeding trough I can imagine after Jesus was born that Joseph probably looked around and the only thing he could find was his feeding trough and I imagine him emptying all the stuff out and finding fresh hay and placing it in this manger making it as soft and comfortable as he could and Mary takes this baby the angel had said it would be God. And she lays him in this manger. There she sits. There they sit. The two of them. Her 13. Him probably somewhere around the age of 15. And Jesus. The son of God. In a manger. I'm sure her mind was still running. She was saying this is my baby yet this is God's son I don't know how I conceived yet I had this baby and the angel said he would be the savior of the world he would be God with us can you imagine our mind running I imagine her stopping and saying why me <laughs> why here See, Luke answers that question of why here for us, because he says there was no room in the inn. There was no room for this baby. They didn't have any friends in Bethlehem that they could crash on their couch. They didn't have any family that they could borrow a room. He even tells us there was no vacancy sign at the Motel 6. There was nowhere for this baby. But hadn't God orchestrated all of this? Was there somewhere that he missed a step? Didn't he know that Mary would have the baby? He had used the Roman Empire to set up the decree to make sure that the Jews got mad enough to send their people to the hometown of those greatest in their lineage And he had orchestrated all this through ungodly men, through godly men, set in a decree and wound up putting Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem, the place that he had prophesied the baby would be born. What did God do? Take a nap and forget? (laughs) There would need to be a place? No, you see, later God alludes to it through the words of Jesus and other places in the gospel. We don't have time to turn. I'll just allude to these for you. He makes a statement. Here he is, the Son of God, and he has nowhere to lay his head. He makes that statement in Luke 9, some chapters over. He also, there's a statement made in John 1, the beginning of John 1. It says that he was the one in the world. The world was made completely through him. And the world did not know him. Can you see this Jesus, the Savior of the world, God's only begotten Son, laying quietly in a manger with a 13 year old girl and a 15 year old boy? And that was it. You see, I find it very interesting that there was no fanfare, there was no church choir singing. There was no band. There was no crowd waiting outside to see what this baby Jesus looked like. He was practically unknown. See, there wasn't even a place that he could lay his head. Yet I find it interesting how the New Testament tells us about this Jesus. For as we alluded to this morning with the lighting of the last candle, I think about this word that comes out of Philippians chapter 2 when it says this in verse 6 who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God here's this Jesus he's God he's laying in a manger he says but made himself of no reputation taking the form of a bond servant and coming in the likeness of men You see, this God chose to take upon himself our form and be born in a manger, practically unknown to the world. And he goes on to say, "And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. See, even though this little baby was unknown to the world at his birth, he would be known by everyone at his death. And at his return, the entire world will bow their knee and proclaim that he is God. He says, Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, and at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those on earth, and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See this baby. See this baby in a manger. See, if God was sovereign over the birth of Jesus, why was there no room in the inn? Why was there no fanfare? Why was everything so normal? There's was nothing extraordinary about the birth of Jesus. See, Jesus was not sent to this world to be extraordinary in his birth. <laughs> see, Jesus was sent to this world to see if there was any room in the inn of our hearts for his love. And the extraordinary thing about Jesus was seen in his death and will be definitely seen in his return, his second advent. When he comes back, the birth, as special as it is, is nothing compared to the day that he doesn't come back in obscurity. He comes back, and every knee of every person on the earth will bow. And with their mouth, they will confess that he is Lord. He was born in a manger. Unknown, he'll return as Lord of all. I find it very interesting, those verses that we read this morning. John. John chapter 3. We know the first, the 16th verse very well. 17th we've heard, but we tend to stop at that point. But let me read all these for you and make a closing statement. is that person's condemnation that the light is come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest the deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. See, when John wrote those words that God so loved the world He gave His only begotten Son, His son was born in a manger, practically unknown. He grew and lived a sinless life, as an example for us. He crawled upon a cross and he died that your sins would be forgiven, that you would see the light. He rose from the grave to give you hope of eternal life with him in heaven. Yet even amongst us this morning, there are those who choose not to believe. Don't say God sent you to hell, because the word says you sent yourself. Because you didn't believe. See, God loved you enough to place that baby in a manger. What are you going to do with it? You see, Jesus came because God loves you. Jesus died to save you from your sins. Jesus rose from the dead that you might have eternal life with God forever. All this was done by the sovereign grace of a mighty God. Completely controlled by the hand of God. There's no debate. There's no doubt about what God has done. What God has done is done. The question what will you do with that baby in the manger? Will you hear the still small voice of God calling you to repentance this morning? Will you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord? Will you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead? Will you not just make room in your heart for the knowledge of this baby, but will you give your heart over to him as Lord? You see, because the day will come when everyone will know him as Lord. Thank you for joining us here at Revealed Truth.